Turn with me in your Bibles to Hosea chapter 11, or just look there in the Bible, or the, uh, at the text as it's printed for you in the bulletin from the New International Version. We've been studying these Old Testament books called the Minor Prophets, the smaller books, the end of the Old Testament, written about 700 years before the coming of Christ. We've been in Hosea for quite a while. It's a longer book, three more chapters. And this chapter is, represents probably the, the highest emotional point by God in the, in the book. As God has been pleading with his people to come back, warning them of what judgment they could bring on themselves as they continue to turn their backs on him. And here he pleads in a way that should rend our hearts and remind us of the freeness, the greatness of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Messiah he's anticipating. We begin reading in verse 1 of Hosea chapter 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals. They burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. Will they not return to Egypt and will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? A sword will flash in their cities. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn away from me, even though they call me the God of the Most High. I will by no means exalt them. But how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zebuim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again. For I am God, not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against your cities. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come from Egypt, trembling like sparrows, from Assyria, fluttering like doves. And I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers, the flower fades. but The word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Open our eyes, O Lord, that we might behold wonderful things, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Messiah anticipated by Hosea. Would you make us to know that gospel for the first time if we have never trusted Christ personally as Lord and Savior? Or would you bring us back to him, back to it for the thousandth time if we have once again begun to trust in ourselves? Visit us afresh with your spirit to help us to see Jesus 
do it unmistakably. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. And God's people said together, amen. I talked about that story with the the children and Jesus from Luke 18. And just a few chapters before that incident, Jesus told another story that we that we typically know as the parable of the prodigal son or the lost son. Prodigal doesn't necessarily mean all bad. It means just a lot. And here was a, a son who sinned greatly. The, the father in the story in Luke 15 had two sons, an older and a younger. And the younger one came to his father one day and effectively said, I don't want to wait for you to die before I get my inheritance. I want you to give it to me right now. His father with a heavy heart gave it to him. He went off and the Bible says he sinned his fill. He, 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 he went through all of the resources. He did whatever he wanted to do. He ended up with nothing. He squandered all of his inheritance to the point that he found a job feeding pigs. And his heart, his uh, stomach was grumbling, growling. One day he was, he was hungry and he, he longed for the food that was being given to the pigs. And he thought to himself, I, if I were back in my father's house, even the servants there, even the hired hands... The farm hands, they have better food than this. I know what I'll do. He said he came to his senses. I am going to return to my father and I'm going to, I'm going to tell him this. I'm going to tell him I've sinned against you and I've sinned against heaven. Now take me back as one of your servants. He went back. His older brother had stayed there all along, serving along as an obedient son, but here's the prodigal son, the wandering son, the one that has sinned prodigally, making his way back. And the father who apparently has been looking for him for a long time, expecting him to squander his goods and longing for him to return, sees him uh, uh, on the horizon and he, he picks up his, his, uh, his robes and he runs toward his son. He falls on his neck and he tells all the servants to throw a party. Bring him a robe, put a ring on his finger, put new sandals on his feet, kill the fatted calf. My son has returned. The older son hears all of the commotion and he asks one of the other servants, what's happening? Well, your son, your brother has come back and your father's throwing a party. He's got a fatted calf. He's given him a robe, a ring. The older son boils with jealousy. He doesn't come to the party. The father misses him among the party goers. So he goes after his elder son, the elder brother, the, the, the prodigal's elder brother. What's going on? Why aren't you there? All these years I've served you and I've obeyed you. I've never gone off and squandered my inheritance like that, that rebel son of yours. And you've never thrown me a party. You've never given me a robe, a ring, a fatted calf. The father said, you have been with me always. Should I not be happy when your son who was lost has been found, when he who was dead has come alive again? The parable of the prodigal son. It's a story that is repeated over and again in Scripture. It's repeated in our text. 
So much so that it was applied to Jesus who became sin for us, that walked a path for us, that he might substitute his righteousness for ours. That's how in verse 1, when Israel was my child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And again, in, uh, at the end of the path, verse 11, they will come from Egypt. Yes, this is a prophecy of what would happen with Jesus, but remember what Jesus was doing. He was reliving the history of Israel and, and, and living in our place. And so that he was tempted. He was, he was in the wilderness wandering. He, he fed the people in the desert with manna. And here he is one who had to go to Egypt and come back because he is demonstrating that he is living life in our place. And so Hosea said, this is the regular story of God's people. God's people are constantly returning to Egypt and God is constantly pursuing them and leading them out. Just like the prodigal son went to his own form of Egypt, his own form of slavery, self-indulgence. And the father was waiting for him to return. And as soon as he catches a glimmer of him, he runs and he greets him and he enfolds him again, as well as pursuing the elder brother who's in the Egypt of his jealousy. And it's a pattern that you and I follow constantly returning to slavery, to self. And God is constantly pursuing with the grace of Jesus Christ. The call this morning is the call that comes to both the prodigal son and the elder brother. It's the call that comes to you and me, come home. No matter where you are, come home to your heavenly father through Jesus Christ. He skillfully, Hosea does, skillfully paints the whole uh, process of walking with the Lord in terms of developmental uh, psychology, infancy and uh, adolescence and adulthood. It begins with the infancy, the, that, that, that initial relationship between God and his people. When Israel was a child, I loved him. He was a baby. I, I went for him. I went for Israel, he says, when, when I called Abraham to be my son and he believed me and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was like a baby, a spiritual baby coming to me, absolutely helpless. He did not commend himself to me by his righteousness. He just believed me. He accepted, he received the gift of righteousness given to me. That's how the Israelites became my people. I took them to me as infants and I trained them to walk. But the more they were called, and the call of the gospel is constantly coming to us, the more they were called, the more they went away from me. This is our tendency. Even though we know by grace we're saved through faith, we continue to turn back to those gods that are more immediately satisfying in our delusion. The gods of the Baals at the end of verse 2. They sacrificed to the Baals. Who were they? They were pagan gods who promised material blessing fertility, success in this life, power, influence. They returned to them over and over again. They forgot me, he says, even though I'm the one, verse three, who taught them to walk 
taking them by the arms and toddling along until their legs got strong enough. They did not realize or they did not want to realize it was I who healed them. Look at the tenderness of this imagery. Verse 4, I led them with cords of human kindness. Hosea's uh, skilled at mixing metaphors here. He's, he's talking about uh, leading an animal, a beast of burden. He takes the yoke off of him and, and uh, relieves him of that, puts a gentle harness around him and starts leading him and then feeding him by hand. I bent down and fed him. So he has mercy on him. and He's leading him along ever so carefully, feeding him everything he needs along the way. But then he uses the metaphor of a, of a human being too. I led them with human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek. This is the way we're saved. Unless you become, he says, unless you become like a little baby, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless you despair of any ability to commend yourself to God, to add to your righteousness. Unless you come to the place of saying, Lord Jesus, you died on the cross, the perfect one who walked in my place, the perfect one who has become sin in my place. Unless you put your blood, please put your blood in my place, put your righteous record in my place. Make me righteous in your sight that I might live forever. It's the only way to enter heaven. Unless you become that way, like a little baby. Lord Jesus, make me holy. Take me to heaven. It's to become like a child. We don't like that in our sophisticated culture. We don't like to become children. This is what's required, this humility to ask God for his salvation rather than continuing to try to earn your own. There's someone else for whom the prodigal son was a powerful story. It's a man named Henry Nowen. Many of you admire him as an author. I do as well. He's, he is uh, now deceased, but he wrote books like The Wounded Healer and, and Reaching Out and Clowning in Rome and the, and the Return of the Prodigal. Henry Nowen says that from <clears throat> the time he was a, a little boy, He was plagued with a feeling of guilt and judgment. And so from the time he was six years old, his earliest memory, he was six years old, he tried to make himself acceptable to God, which everybody is trying to do in one way or another, regardless of whom they identify as God. There is this inner sense of justice that we know that we owe someone an accounting of who we are. And we're trying in one way or another to make ourselves right. And that was true of now when he started his earliest dress-up times were dressing up as a priest. So he thought, if I can just make myself a holy man, if I can just make myself a priest, I will be accepted by God. He worked his way through into the priesthood and then into academia and taught at Yale and Harvard and achieved accolades at those levels. And still, he had this burden that he was not right with God. He couldn't make himself perfect enough. 
somehow he made his way to, I forgot what the occasion was, but he made his way to St. Petersburg in Russia. And he was in the State Heritage Museum. And there is Rembrandt, Rembrandt von Rinn's uh, interpretation of the story of the prodigal son. Now, I'll give you permission. Uh, it's not common, but I'll give you permission right now on your smartphone or your tablet. You can look up Rembrandt's prodigal son. This is, that, this is what he found himself in front of. And for hours, he stared at that picture. And it was in that picture, it was in those hours that he spent examining that picture from every perspective. 1986, he said, there was a breakthrough in my life. As I study the imagery that Rembrandt himself, who viewed himself as a prodigal, painting himself 30 years earlier as a prodigal who effectively was raising his fist at God saying, I'm having a good time, thank you. To the point that he becomes a derelict and finishes his days in ignominy and yet in dependence on the Lord. He now and saw himself there. If you look at the if you look at the picture, here's what you see. There's a the prodigal is has his back to you. And he's on his knees. And he's collapsed into his father's chest. And you don't see any hands. Only the soles of his feet and his bare head. The elder brother to the right in the picture has his hands folded like this in judgment. And the father has hands on the back of his son. The left hand, a larger, more masculine hand. And the right hand, a smaller, smoother, tender hand. Like the hand of a father and the hand of a mother. A strong rescuing hand and the tender nurturing hand of a mother. Now and said, I saw myself in the elder brother. I'd tried to make myself right with him. I'd become arrogant and fretful, just like we see in this passage. My people, verse 7, are determined to turn away from me, even though they call me God most high, I will by no means exalt them. Yes, at times they're afraid of Egypt and Assyria. But they're arrogant, having been rescued by my grace initially. Now they have effectively said, I've got it from here. And occasionally I'll throw up some arrow prayers to the most high God. But otherwise, I am fine, thank you, arrogant. And self-confident. This was the elder brother. But he said now and said, I needed to be converted. And the conversion of an elder brother is even more difficult than the conversion of a prodigal. I needed to be converted to this place where I have no longer my hands trying to contribute to my salvation, but to collapse into the breast of Jesus. The call of the gospel is to return to infancy constantly. You can be a legalist in all kinds of ways. You can be an elder brother in all kinds of ways. You're not just a legalist 
as one who adds laws to the Christian life to try to make yourself more righteous. You can be legalistic about grace. I believe more grace than you do. You can be legalistic in your political views. You can be legalistic and exclusivistic in your, in your ethical views uh, that are, that are uh, characteristic in our culture. Here's how you can test yourself as an elder brother or elder sister. How many conversations, how many lines do you speak like this? In your mind or in person? I deserve fill in the blank. And they do not deserve fill in the blank. I deserve the favor of God because I believe the right, right way about climate change. Or I believe the right way about there is no climate change. Or I believe the right way about immigration. Or I believe the right way about no immigration. I believe the right way about reformed theology. Or I believe the right way about Arminian theology. I, I deserve God's favor because of the way I've raised my children. I deserve God's favor because of the way I keep the laws. We can each become elder brothers and sisters, even if we have come to Christ initially as infants, trusting him alone for salvation. You and I, I, I trust I was saved initially by grace, but now I am being sanctified by my sweat and by my good works and my right views. Each of us, including your pastor, is a recovering elder brother. And the call of the gospel is to return again and again to this infancy, which never says, I deserve anything. And never says about someone else in judgment, they deserve. But rather nothing in my hands I bring simply to your cross, I cling. Now and was reshaped by that realization that he was the elder brother and needed to become the prodigal again. Let me change the metaphor even again and say, it seems to me that there are times when, because God loves us, and if we are his children, he loves us too much to let us continue on in that self righteousness. Continue on in that exclusivity and that in that judgment of other people of thinking that somehow we're contributing to God or if he's judging he's he's grading on a scale. We're among the inside group. He loves his children so much that when they continue in that path, he will drop a boulder in your life. In order to bring everything to a halt and bring you back to square one. Where do I get that here in the text? He says, uh, they will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. God is determined in verses eight and following. He is determined that he is not going to let go of those who are truly his. How can I give you up Ephraim as much as I would want to? How can I hand you over Israel? How can I treat you like Adma and Zebuim? These are the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. My heart is changed with me. It's torn up. I'm conflicted. 
All my compassion is around. You deserve judgment, but my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. I am not a capricious person. I am the Holy God who has promised to be your covenant God, the one through whom the Messiah is going to come. I'm not going to give up on you. So what will he do? I'll drop a boulder in your life or I'll be like a lion who roars and says, my children will come trembling when I do. They will come from Egypt. I will bring them back in repentance and I'll settle them back in their homes. The call of the Christian life is to return constantly to this infancy of dependence on grace alone through faith and to treat other people likewise. And it happens as we live in community with others who are committed to the same grace. I remember a a woman in my first church who was a dear friend. She wasn't easy to love, and she said I wasn't easy to love either. We'll call her Georgia, not her real name, because she was, we were so much alike. But uh, she's the grandmother of a famous theologian. And she was one of those people you could always count on, whatever you needed. She was there. She was brilliant. She had a photographic memory. She was a woman of letters. She was a teacher. She was, she was well-read. She knew her theology. She was an evangelist. And she had a good marriage. She had raised uh, successful children in the, in the, in the uh, world's eyes. And, and yet she was so proud. She would regularly talk about what people other people deserved and how they needed to straighten up. And she was an expert in everything. She was an expert in music. She was an expert in worship. She was an expert in preaching. She was an expert in flowers. She was an expert in, in, um, in education, in parenting, grandparenting, whatever you needed, just ask her. She was an expert in it. She was very secure in herself. And the Lord dropped a boulder in her life. She developed an autoimmune disease that left her in constant pain all the time. Every movement was painful. The medications were, were counter to her, her, her way her, or, or hindered her way of life. And eventually the Lord healed her of that, of that disease. But in the meantime, she came to me one day and she said, George... I'm so exhausted. I'm so tired of living this way. I can't do anything. I can't make a contribution. I can't take up the responsibilities I'm supposed to do. I can't go to family. I can't even sit still and worship. I can't go to Bible study. I can't hold my eyes open in, in, uh, in, in, in a prayer meeting. I, and I can't pray. I can't read my Bible. I can't even pray. My mind can't stay focused enough to pray. I'm exhausted. And I said, Georgia, 
you are becoming more human. You are learning again to rest on the Lord Jesus for everything instead of thinking you're somehow earning your keep. So in the meantime, let us worship for you. Let us carry you on our praises. Let us pray for you. She had no choice but to rest. She became like a baby. The Lord helped her to heal physically. And she changed quite a bit, not totally, spiritually and emotionally. But she never forgot that lesson of what it means to depend totally on Jesus Christ like a baby. Here's the call to you. No matter where you are, whether you have never given your life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the call is come home. Or if you've given your life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and you're a professional Christian, or you've been one for a very long time, the call to every one of us is exactly the same. Come home to Jesus Christ and fall helplessly into his bosom and rest in him alone. That roar that you may be hearing. Yes, it's terrifying now. You interpret it as an act of aggression, but really it is a roar of love telling you to come home. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ that we are prone to forget. We ask for those who have never received it this day to become new believers. And those who have received it even many years ago would once again embrace childlikeness, childlike dependence on Christ alone for their righteousness now and forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.